all the kids who are helping in the Sunday school play. Off you go. Off you go. We get to see the product of all this hard work next week. I don't need to tell you this, but I'll tell you this anyway. Something changes when you become a parent of the kids in this play. Like the storyline and the songs they sing. I don't know, I'm not too bothered by it. I just really want to see my kids up there. I'm like, whether they do really well or whether it's really funny how quiet they are, as a parent, that's what I'm watching. It's like if you ask me after the play is all done, like, what did they talk about? I don't know. I might catch it, I might not, but I'll just be like, did you see how scared one of the ones was and how the other one kept playing with his hands in his pockets and... You're taking pictures, but you're just zooming in on your kid, and you're never going to look at those photos again, but you save them on your phone just in case. Man, being a parent's weird. (laughs) Sorry, you know this, but I'm just going through this. We're celebrating the candle of peace. Not going to lie, Dave's prayer, that's kind of tricky, isn't it? He comes up and says, that peace hasn't come. There is no peace. Praying for it around the world, there's no peace. Praying for it at home, there's no peace. And why am I up here for the next half an hour? Why do we light the candle? If there is no peace. My friends, the battle is not a battle of flesh and blood. The, pa- the battle is a battle against the power of sin and death and darkness. And that battle, my friends, that battle's been won. We're going to celebrate that and reflect on that this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, we are going to be all over the map. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to start in Genesis, just like you should for any good Christmas sermon, and make our way to Revelation one more time. Last week, I hope you remember what we talked about. Do you remember? I gave you a clue. Last week, we lit the candle of hope. And we lit the candle of hope because for the first time, after the birth and death of Jesus, there is finally hope. And what are we hoping for? What are we hoping in? The hope is that through Jesus, we are reunited with God, made righteous, so that we can be in relationship with God, something that was broken a long time ago. And without that ability to be in relationship with God, friends, there is no hope. There's no reason to sing the songs that we do or pray our prayers. There's no hope. But that hope has been made through Jesus. And as we light the second candle this morning, we talk about peace. And as we talk about peace, we're going to talk about the light. And in contrast to the light, we are going to talk about the darkness. And do you know where we get the darkness first in the Bible? Where do you think we should start? Let's start way at the beginning, shall we? So if you've got your Bibles open, we are going to start in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the very introduction to the story, 
as creation itself is being introduced to you and me, we encounter darkness. Do you see how light needed to be introduced to the story, but what didn't need to be introduced? Darkness. Darkness was already there. It's hovering there, and it's over this water. And is God going to defeat darkness? Is he going to eliminate it? No. What's he going to do to the darkness? He's going to separate it. The next verses go on to say that God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. In this first act of creation, we don't even have the sun. We don't have the moon yet. Those won't appear till day four. But already God enters into the act of creating, takes the darkness, and separates it from light. Now I'm using this to symbolically point ahead to a couple chapters when the deceiver is going to enter the story and spiritual darkness enters our lives. You see, to celebrate peace, we need to reflect on why we experience a moment of peace because a moment of peace is going to be the conclusion to a moment of what? What does peace come after? It comes after the battle. It comes after the war. That's why we call it times of peace because what came before the time of peace? A time when there was no peace. So what are we celebrating? If we're celebrating that we are in a moment of peace, then there must have been a moment when peace did not exist. And do you want to see its introduction? The introduction to darkness spiritually into the lives of people. And as I was reading it this week, I began to see with new eyes how upside down Genesis chapter 3 is. We're going to read a few of these verses. I'm going to start at verse 1, and then you'll see a few of the verses up on the screen, not all of them. But if you're following along, look for how light and darkness are interacting in this story. Look for how eyes are closed and eyes are opened in this story. Look at how spiritual darkness enters our world. The story begins like this, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be, what is the word? Opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Something happened in that moment. What Satan did, what the deceiver did to them, and he does it to us, 
is that he weaves together a story to deceive you into thinking that you are in the dark. You see, what you really need to do is open your eyes. What you really need to do is grasp that fruit. What you really need to do is come out of the darkness that God has you covered in and experience light. Do you see how evil it is to take a half-truth and spin it like that? Even the phrasing, the idea that God is holding something back from you. He's implying that God has left Adam and Eve in the dark. He has this treasure that he's not going to share with them. But really, if you just take it and grasp it, come on into the light. He uses the idea of eyes open and closed, right? God has left your eyes closed, but there is a way for them to be opened. Come into the light. Because no one wants to be in the dark. No one wants to have something withheld from them. And Satan convinces them that they're in the dark. He, the deceiver, the Satan, becomes the primary enemy of God and his people then. This darkness throughout the rest of scripture. And that, my friends, is the reason why we need Jesus. Because you and I on our own are unable to defeat this enemy. It's impossible for us. Why? Because he has broken the heart of mankind, and introduce sin in a way that none of us are able to pull out. God gave the people of Israel, now jumping ahead a little bit, the law of Moses. And this law was a list of commands that was meant to shape the heart of humans. And the foundation of it is the Ten Commandments that were used to shape the heart of humans. But even with structure like that, even with that structure... Humans living it out were unable to produce the change of heart needed to defeat sin in our lives. We were unable to produce the holiness and righteousness that God asks of us. So generations take place, and generations after that, and generations after that. And you get to Isaiah. Now Isaiah is an interesting one, because we read Isaiah all the time at Christmas, and it is nowhere near the birth of Jesus. It's one of the most depressing periods of time in the Bible, if you know history. Why? Because the people were just about to get sent into their second slavery. There's these pillars historically in the Bible that anchor the main stories. As a young person, when you begin to read the Bible like that, like it unlocks the pages in here. But God's people are dragged into this 400-year slavery in Egypt. And it symbolizes something. It symbolizes their time of darkness. And then Moses swoops in and God uses him to be the deliverer. He's the savior of the people. And then the people get to dwell with God forever, what it was supposed to be in the promised land. But through their failure, their highs and lows, the different kings and rulers and judges that come in to rule God's people and then ultimately fail because of the broken hearts of humans. It leads us to a time when God is going to send his people one more time into darkness and slavery. God is going to punish his people by separating. Friends, don't miss this. Separation is all throughout the Bible. 
So he's going to separate himself from the people. And Isaiah's job was to tell everybody. Isn't that fantastic? Isaiah, the worst thing in the history of my nation is about to happen. Would you let them know, please and thank you, for your entire life? And then half of Jeremiah is after you. So Isaiah, being the faithful prophet, goes up to the people and he tells them what's going to happen. That God does what God does. What does he do? He takes hope. And he places hope in the story. So as Isaiah says to them, you are about to get destroyed. You are about to get taken away to a land that is not your own. You are going to become a captive. You are going to be punished for your lack of obedience and righteousness and holiness. And these other nations are going to swoop in and they're going to destroy you. And you trust in these other nations far more than you should. And yet, he says, there will be a remnant. Yet, there will be a seed that sprouts into this branch of Jacob. Yet, we will come home. Some of you will rebuild the people of God. And one day, a child will be born. So in a time of darkness, God is revealing light. I wanted to read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 9 before we go to the New Testament. Simply so you and I can remember that this theme of darkness and light is throughout all of Scripture. The story of Jesus being born traces its origin back to the garden, and we can't lose that because when we lose it, it becomes a few pages in the New Testament. And we need to continue to read the scriptures knowing that Jesus' birth was necessary from chapter 1, and it's the grand conclusion of the final chapter. We can't lose that. Otherwise, this, this whole celebration becomes so little when it is, it's the summit of the mountain, it's the pinnacle of the whole story. Isaiah chapter 9. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This is verse 1. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And you might say, Darren, that's super confusing. Why did you just read that? That makes no sense. Because those are the verses that lead up to this. 
And we don't read that at the Christmas pageant, do we? No, we don't. Are those verses that I just read going to come up the Christmas Eve service? No, not a chance on earth. It'll be this verse. For unto us the child is born. But what you and I need to remember is that he was prophesying their destruction and then their salvation. The chapter before is all about the Assyrian Empire coming to blow them away. Do you know how the Assyrians were going to enter the promised land? Do you get nerdy when it comes to geography? Yeah, it's okay. I'm going to tell you anyway. Like You could say stop, I don't care. So here's how they would enter the promised land. They would come from the north because Assyria is north of them. And do you know what land they would enter through first? I'll give you a hint. We just read their names just a couple verses ago. As they come from the north, they're going to come through Zebulun and through Naphtali. They're going to come right there along the Sea of Galilee, the highway of the sea. That's how they're going to enter. That's how the nation is going to get blown apart by this army. They're going to surround Jerusalem. They're going to destroy Judah. Did you hear, though, what Isaiah just said? In the latter days, God is going to make glorious Zebulun and Naphtali. He's going to make glorious the Galilee of the nations. He's going to take the clothes of the soldiers and they're going to be fuel for the fire. It hasn't even happened yet. These people are still living comfortably in their homes. And Isaiah is saying, not only are you going to get blown apart, but friends, there's even hope for your restoration. One day the clothes of soldiers will be what we throw in the fire to keep our homes warm. They won't be necessary anymore. But Isaiah was wrong, wasn't he? Assyria shows up and blows them apart. There wasn't peace in that land. It was devastating. And then later, at the hand of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar drags them away for 70 years. So when was this hope supposed to come? When were they supposed to be rebuilt? Verse 6, you see it on the screen? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is the time of the restoration. Friends, that is the time we can light the candle and it's coming. How bizarre is it to think that in the middle of the battle, Isaiah is speaking words of peace to them. Ready for the moment when the whole story turns upside down? We're here celebrating Revelation. The day of no more crying, mourning, or pain. That day hasn't come. We're celebrating a victory that hasn't arrived. Dave comes up here, like I said, and prays a prayer Thankful for peace. That hasn't even come. Thank you, God, for our Christmas presents that mom and dad haven't even purchased yet. 
Do you notice in verse six that the child is born but the son is given? Do you notice that? The son isn't born, the son's not created, he's eternal, but a child is being given? That's pretty cool, eh? That's just a little bonus for you if you pay attention to stuff like that. I thought that was neat. Friends, when I read Revelation, I am inspired, even though that moment hasn't come yet. But this moment was coming. There was going to be a government upon his shoulders. Doesn't this make sense then why the Pharisees were so confused when Jesus shows up? Doesn't it make sense why even the disciples were so confused when Jesus shows up and he doesn't take on the Romans? He says he's going to die and they don't understand why because this is what they grew up reading. That the kingdom was going to rest on him. The government, the authority was going to rest on him. He was going to carry forward David's kingdom forever. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave. And they're left with this childhood Bible verse that they memorized and it doesn't make any sense. Let's turn to John together and let's see what they thought about the light that was coming. And then we're going to talk one last time about the enemy of darkness and how he's defeated in the revelation. During the Advent reading, we had some verses read from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I love that. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Why? Because we are people of darkness. We don't crave the light. You see that more clearly in the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3. Jesus gets together with this Pharisee of Pharisees, this Sanhedrin member. He's part of the ruling council. And he says to him, Nicodemus, to enter my kingdom, my authority, my government, you must be born again. You must take your broken, sinful heart, and it must be rebirthed. You must take the darkness inside of you, and it needs to be transformed into light. There needs to be this incredible head-to-toe change, far greater than just following the Old Testament laws. And you get the famous verse, John 3.16, he says to Nicodemus that God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in verse 19, just a few verses later, he says to Nicodemus, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, the reason why we read scripture like this is because this is the description of the battle. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, on one side is darkness and on the other side is light. And I come to bring light for all these people. And yet their heart craves the darkness. They, in their evil works, crave the darkness. Why? For some reason, our hearts since the very beginning have wanted that. We want it. Because there's some sort of lie attached to the darkness. Don't be fooled by how Satan masks it like it's something good for you. Most of the sins that you commit, start to think through them, the sins that you struggle with. How you convince yourself that they'll provide you with pleasure, purpose, identity, security. These different lies, building yourself up, right? Power and pride and control. Those are good things, aren't they? And sin just lures you into this darkness to the point where you don't even crave light anymore. Because to pursue the light means you're going to have to give up those things of darkness. Jesus is sitting in front of a Pharisee and he's saying to them, I brought the kingdom and you don't even want it. I brought the verses from Isaiah chapter 9. I am the one who brings light into the darkness. You don't even want it. But Jesus' enemy wasn't Nicodemus. Jesus' enemy wasn't Pilate. Jesus' enemy wasn't the Romans, wasn't the Sanhedrin, wasn't the Pharisees. Jesus' enemy is the deceiver, is the Satan. And even though the people are being drawn into darkness, you can tell how Jesus' focus is so clearly on who he needs to go after. He doesn't deviate from his plan, but he knows how hard it's going to be for his disciples. Do you remember that story when he's sitting with them having the Last Supper and he prays over them? This is John 16. And as he's telling all of them that he's leaving And he's getting ready to go. He's going to die and he won't be there anymore. He is going to, how does he phrase it? The hour is coming. His death is coming. And he says in John 16, Do you now believe? Behold, verse 32 of chapter 16, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you, you'll leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone. The Father is with me, and I've said these things to you, that in me you may have, what? In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I've overcome it. 
And this is all building. You're like, Darren, come on, get to Christmas. We're getting there. He says to his disciples, in this world you will experience no peace. Did you hear that? Don't don't fall for the lies of the prosperity preachers who tell you that following Jesus is the healing balm that fixes all the issues in your life. That with enough faith, you'll become rich and successful and that your family will experience good health. And for the low, low price of $29.99, buy this prayer item that we'll send to you and your life will be fine. It won't be. If I could just run out to you in your seat right now and just like, It's a little bit of the Bible on your forehead, just a little bit to tell you it's not going to be okay. You're going to leave this building hopefully incredibly encouraged, even though this has been depressing so far. You're going to leave this building and be so encouraged. And the life and the world and the people that you're going to encounter outside of those doors, it stinks. This life is tough. And it's not fun a lot of the time. So for me to tell you that it's fine that we experience peace in Jesus, let's light the candle and sing the songs, but tomorrow you're going to battle sin and darkness all over again like you have every day of your life. Following Jesus doesn't provide you peace over all the aspects of your life from this world. No, he said to his disciples, this life is going to be filled with challenges, tribulation, But take heart, I've overcome it. The pinnacle of this, in my opinion, might be John 19. Jesus goes to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, this is verse 28. Told you we'd be all over the Bible. This is the death of Jesus. And it says, John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And they brought a jar of sour wine. They put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch. They held it to his mouth to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. And once he had received the wine, he said it. He said it. Come on. I'm the only one who's excited right now. It's okay. He said it. What did he say? It's finished. What's finished? That's not a rhetorical question. What is finished? Satan. It's finished. Who do you think he was talking to? His father? The people? He's talking to everyone. And he says, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. Done. It's finished. He overcame darkness. He pays the price and the sin cost of everyone. Everyone. It's finished. You being good enough, finished. Me being good enough, finished. It's done. That, friends, is why we light the peace candle. That is why we celebrate the birth of our king. Because finally, finally done. 
When you turn to Ephesians, you get that famous passage in chapter 6 about the enemy not being flesh and blood, being darkness. We can look at it for just a second and then we'll keep moving to our final passage. But this one is just, it's too well known to not mention. The armor of God, right? Ephesians chapter 5, chapter 6, pardon me. Starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, I love this. For we, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So take up God's armor. The enemy is not the Romans. Even though the Romans were killing them day by day by day, the enemy is the deceiver. Put on God's armor. Take God's strength, because you cannot defeat the darkness on your own. You are going to need the power of the light. And friends, in Revelation 19, one of the best whoopings you're ever going to read in the Bible takes place. Revelation 19, Jesus comes back. And Jesus is a big believer in hurting people. He's a big believer in getting physical. And you read in Revelation 19, when he comes back after darkness, Jesus is not polite with darkness. Jesus takes his battle very seriously. And yet, Jesus is gracious and gentle and kind and caring with us. Do you understand? For we are not the enemy. The enemy is sin and darkness. That's why you read in the Revelation, chapter 19, John says that he saw heaven open and behold, a white horse came through. The one sitting on the horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. Verse 14, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name. And that name is written, and that name says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, he's coming back one day to defeat sin and death and darkness forever. Forever. That way we can appreciate and enjoy Revelation 21. When he says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more done. Neither shall there be mourning done nor crying Done. No, <laughs> no pain anymore. It's done. For the former things have passed away. 
the former things. For our perspective this Christmas to change, last week we talked about our hope that we often place in ourselves needs to be placed in Jesus. And I would say that this Christmas for you, for me especially, I need to remember that the peace that I experience in this world is a peace that Jesus provides from the sin and death and darkness that comes from my heart every single day. And that doesn't mean that tomorrow my life will be okay. It will be filled with pain and heartache, just like yours, because sin is in this world. And yet we light this candle, and yet we sing these songs, friends, and we should and we always will. Why? Because it's done. Because Jesus on the cross said it is finished. He knew who his enemy was. He knew from Genesis chapter 3 when God said to Adam and Eve, that a seed of the woman would one day use his heel to crush the head of the serpent. The days when Isaiah read those passages to the people and said, light has come into a land of darkness. A son will be given, a child will be born. Hmm. That night, when Jesus was born, shepherds saw the angels appear, and it was blinding. The angels are described like flashes of lightning. They were so bright. And up above where Jesus was born, up in the sky, what did the people see? What was hanging above the little town of Bethlehem? What was up there? A star. God placed a light in the sky to reveal to the people that a light was coming into the world. Let's pray together. And as we pray, let's thank God for the light that he sent in the world that we get to celebrate each year at Christmas. And the worship team will come up and lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for what you have done for each one of us in our family. Father, I'm so thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to provide the peace that we so desperately need against the attacks of sin and death and darkness. Father, I pray that you would give us incredible faith and trust in you as we go throughout our lives and we experience the pain of sin and death day by day. Lord Jesus, give us confidence that the light will not be overcome by the darkness. And on the days, Lord Jesus, when we do feel overwhelmed and overcome by the darkness, help us to cling to the light. Father, as we get ready to experience and celebrate Christmas in just a few weeks, I pray that this church would reflect that light to everyone at home and at work and with your friends and with your family. Just reflect that light, Lord Jesus, through us by the power of your spirit. 
I just pray that people would see hope and they would see light, even for the first time this year. God, we pray for revival in our land. We pray, Lord Jesus, for hearts to be transformed by you this Christmas. Would there just be a beacon of light above our church and above the other churches in our city this Christmas? Would people walking in a land of great darkness come to find you, Jesus? We are so thankful for the victory that we have in you. Thank you for the light that's come into the world. We pray these things in the powerful name of our King, Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us in singing.
May you shine the light of Jesus this Christmas. May you follow in the symbol of the star and point people back to the Savior and the King. May God bless you and watch over you as you go from this place and as you extend love and grace to other people and as you point people back to him and the hope that we have in him. Father, bless us. Bless your family as we go from this place. Fill us, Lord Jesus, with your peace. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.